0: Acts chapter 10, all right, as you're turning there, can I share with you my kids' favorite phrase in the entire world, all right, you ready, that's not fair, anybody else have kids, anybody else hear that, yeah, I hear that about a thousand times a day, let me give you a scenario, this happened just the other day, you go to a birthday party, and Emma, my oldest, leaves a balloon. Uh, her orange balloon, because orange is their favorite color, and Addie has her purple balloon, because that's her favorite color, and she brings it, and she doesn't forget it. So what happens is we get in the car, and Emma says, Addie has her balloon, and I left it, and that's not fair. Right? That's not fair. That's not fair. Over and over. It, it, so at some point, I had to sit them down, and I often tell them this. I tell my kids this all the time. Sweetheart, life's not fair. Right? I just need you to know that. that that's just something that you need to know. All right, so it gets to the point where this happens a lot, and then Addie the other day, she's complaining about something, and she says that's not fair, and Emma looks at her and says, sweetheart, I just need to let you know that life's not fair. Isn't that right, Daddy? I'm like, oh gosh, what did I do? All right? listen, by the way, if you don't believe in total depravity, you just come spend 30 minutes at my house, and I'll prove that wrong by you hanging out with my three kids, and you'll see that they are born that way, I promise. All right. Every single time that I see this out of my kids, it reminds me of something that I want to show you in Acts chapter 10. Here's what it reminds me of, and this is the passage that you're going to see. Listen, God shows no partiality. Okay, simply put, God's not fair. I, I just want you to see this today, over and over and over again in Acts chapter ten. You're going to see the story of a Gentile, which is a non-Jewish man, come to faith in Jesus. Okay, and then the gospel is going to spread to non-Jews around the world and listen over and over and over again. He is going to blow your mind of all your presuppositions that you may have, and he's going to show you the gospel simply not fair. And that's good news. Okay, this is exactly what you need to see is the gospel is actually the total opposite of fair. It's God giving you and I what we don't deserve and here's what we don't deserve, it's grace. Over and over and over again, the gospel is gonna tell you that you don't deserve God's goodness and kindness and grace. Actually, you deserve quite the opposite, but God's not fair. God gave Jesus what you deserve so that you can have what you don't deserve, okay? Over and over again, this is what I want you to see is that we have completely rigged, a system, and in our culture, we call it meritocracy. If you do enough, if you achieve enough, you'll have more, and you'll be more successful. But what you see when you encounter the gospel is the complete opposite. The gospel actually says if you're meek enough, if you humble yourself enough, if you're the exact opposite of what everybody else thinks, then you actually receive his grace, and what you should walk away thinking is, that's not fair. God, if you gave me fairness, I wouldn't have you at all. So Acts chapter 10 is the story of God's complete and awesome unfairness given to a group of people who don't deserve it. So if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 10, verse 1, all right? At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. All right. First thing is, if you were a first century Jew reading this text, your mind would be blown. Why? Because of who Cornelius was. He was a centurion, which means that he was a non-commissioned officer in the Roman army who had a brigade of people in Italy of this Italian cohort that would go out, okay, to this place. Listen, he was a Gentile. This is a massive thing. If you underline things in your Bible, like these are one of the things that you're going to see over and over again in this passage is that this man was not a Christian. You see, up until this point in history, listen to me, up until this point in history, nobody, had access to God except Jews, ethnically, uh, ethnic Jews, people who were born into the nation of Israel. And what you see at this point, okay, is you have a Gentile, a guy who should not ever come into the presence of God at this point in history, who it says he is praying, and he's a God-fearing man who is generous in giving his alms to God. As a matter of fact, the way that the the temple was constructed, if you read the Old Testament, is that if you were a non-Jew, you actually were put to death by coming into the temple. So they created these, these central points where you would have only Jews could access one point. If you went inside of that, you had to be a priest. If you went inside of there, you had to be like the high priest who would go into the Holy of Holies. So if you keep stepping out, there was a place called the Court of the Gentiles where you would have this outer court that non-Jewish people could actually go and observe what the people of God were doing, but they were not allowed to pass that point. Okay, over and over and over again in the Bible, you're going to see this. In this story, the story of Cornelius is so massively important that it's actually told three times in the book of Acts. It's told in Acts chapter 10, it's repeated in Acts chapter 11, and it's the central theme in Acts chapter 15. When you see that happen, this means stop and pay attention because this is going to be a defining point for the Bible right here in all of human history is going to change based on what happens to Cornelius. So in verse 2, you see he feared God. He feared God, okay? Listen, you have to understand this. Like Again, this would have been absolutely ridiculously mind-blowing that you would see a non-Jewish man fear God. But one of the things I want you to see here is that, listen, you can fear God, okay? We'll come back to this in a little bit, and actually not have Jesus. There's a difference here, Okay? This guy, Cornelius, he actually wasn't a Christ follower yet, and you're going to see this, but he feared God. He was, he was religious in nature. He was generous. He gave alms, and then God actually heard him. All right, so keep going with me. Listen to what it says in verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God who came in, and he said to him, Cornelius, and like any of us would do, Cornelius stared in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. That's incredibly important. God heard your prayers. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Here's a few things I want you to know. Number one, God hears your prayers. I want you to see this. Okay, you have a centurion, remember, a non-Jewish man who, up until this point in history, would have never come into God's presence. And what does the angel of the Lord say to him? God has heard your prayers. Don't take that for granted. Listen, when God's people pray, God listens. Okay, It, it is the greatest miracle ever that your prayers, according to the Bible, actually have the ability to move the affections of God. We see this all the time. Is God completely sovereign? Yes. Does God move based on his people's prayers? Yes, listen to me. If God's people pray and seek God, God listens. You see that. Number two, okay, it always takes somebody to share the gospel. You've heard me say this week in and week out, but look at what happens here. The angel of the Lord comes up to Cornelius, and what does he say? He doesn't tell him about Jesus. Did you notice that? This is really, really important. No, he says, go and get Peter. This is how the gospel works every single time. You will not find one time in the book of Acts where the gospel is presented that is not presented by a human being going and telling somebody else about Jesus. Listen, this is how God sovereignly has worked it out, is that God is working not only in Cornelius, but I believe he's working even in Peter, and he's bringing these two together for the purpose of sharing the gospel. You are God's game plan. I have tried to put this out every single week, and this is the point of reason why we're going through the book of Acts, is because we want to show you that God's kingdom advances in the world when God's people take responsibility to share God's gospel all the way around the world. Okay, because if you think about it, it would have been a lot easier for the angel of the Lord to simply say, hey, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers, this is who Jesus is, and if you just believe in him, you will become saved. Right? That would have been a lot easier. And oftentimes when I read the Bible, I think, why did that not just happen? And the answer is, I don't know. But the reality is, is what you see, and Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 10, is the only way that people hear the gospel is when God's people tell people about Jesus. So what does that mean? If you think logically and go back, here's what it means. The gospel will not spread if you don't tell people. Okay? This is why we do mission work. I'll just be honest with you. Like, I don't go, and we don't go on mission trips because they're always fun, even though they are fun. Like, we have a great time, but we go because we believe that this is true. And I hear this a lot. People come up to me a lot and say, well, I don't really think I need to go, like, go to mission work because there's a lot of stuff to do here. Right? I get that. Um, but I, just be honest with you, a little transparent for a second, I think that's Satan's greatest tactic. Hey, don't worry. Stay here. And don't go there while two billion people around the world will literally live and die and never hear the name of Jesus unless we go. Like, that's true. By the way, I I heard um, Pastor David Platt say this the other day. He says, do you know what the difference is between Alpharetta and Afghanistan? He goes, there are not unreached people groups in Alpharetta because you're here. Right? People have access to the gospel because you're here. But they don't there. So maybe, just maybe, God is calling some of us to go. Now now check this out, because I'm convinced, and I'm going to show you this in a little bit, but I'm convinced that God uses or he chooses to spread the gospel in this way because he's working in the life of the hearer and the one who's sharing. I'm convinced that not only whenever somebody hears the gospel does God does some incredible things, but he does it in you when you go. I mean, I watched this happen when we were in the Dominican Republic with five other people who have, um, most of which are the people that went on that trip, had never shared the gospel before uh, outside of their context. And I watched on day one uh, a group of people who were a little intimidated by day six go and be bold and grow in their faith and to a point to where it continued to well up inside of them, this reality of, of like God is moving. And he's not just moving there, but he's moving in my heart. And I'm convinced that's how God works. So if you notice this, God always moves when God's people share the gospel, but it always takes God's people to share the gospel. Here's number three here. Listen, your good works don't save you. That's just another observation in this text. Did you notice this, that Cornelius does everything right, right? He has power, yet he's generous. He prays and he treats people well. You would think that God would come down and he would say, hey, Cornelius, you were really awesome. Like, You have power and prestige. You are a Roman soldier who can do anything you want, and you choose to worship me. But that's not what he says. God says, no, go send to Joppa. Go find a man named Peter, because he's got something you need to hear. So here it is, right? God, God really does hear your prayers. It takes people to share the gospel. And listen to me, your good works don't save you. That's what you should take away from that one section. Let's keep reading. Verse nine. The next day, As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord for I have not eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once. It's a pretty weird scene, if I'm honest. I call this the very first pig in a blanket, right? (laughs) Those things come down to Peter, and listen, Peter's hungry, Peter wants something to eat, Peter falls into a trance, and he sees a vision just like Cornelius, except, listen, Peter's vision is Jesus dropping a bunch of animals down that the Old Testament would tell the Jewish people, You touch that, you are unclean, and you are ceremonially unworthy to be in God's presence. So Peter does like only Peter can do. He looks at Jesus and tells him no, like he does often. But, you know, before we give Peter such a hard time, which we like to do, listen to me, this would have been mind blowing for 1,400 years. The system by which Peter would have operated would have said, there's absolutely no way that I should touch this stuff. And honestly, I touch this stuff, like I'm not even worried to being in your presence. It'd be like a Southern Baptist preacher going home and going to sleep, and he wakes up, and he sees a bottle of bourbon coming down to him, and somebody says, arise and take a sip. It would be like massive red flags, right? You don't do that. You don't do that. This is what's happening. Every single thing and every category by which Peter had ever lived was being challenged in this moment. But what does Jesus tell him? What I call clean, you don't call unclean. Or to say it another way, the things that I have cleansed, they're no longer unclean, Peter. What you need to understand is I've changed things. And then he does this little detail in verse 16. If you remember, he says it three times. See, if you recall, if you've read your Bible, this happens to Peter quite often. Jesus tells Peter, you'll deny me three times, and then the rooster crowed, and Peter comes to the realization that he has messed up royally. He's denied the Lord. You get to the end of the book of John, and uh, Jesus is talking to John, and John calls himself the beloved one, and John's talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, your life's going to turn out a certain way, and Peter says, what about mine? What does Jesus do? He asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? That was For him to remember, something significant is about to happen, and Peter says yes. Peter says yes, and he finally gets aggravated, he's like, you know that I love you. And he says, just obey me, because you're going to die for obeying me. And then you get here to Acts chapter 10, and the same thing happens, and what should spark in your mind is this is a really, really significant moment. Something drastic is about to happen here. So what's going on? Does Jesus really care all that much about food? I don't think so. Listen. Jesus is about to change the lens through which Peter sees the world. See, Jesus isn't talking about food at all. He's talking about human sinfulness. He's talking about humanity here. Jesus is showing Peter yet again that what God makes clean, what God changes, you no longer call unclean. See, right now, Peter has never had a category by which somebody of another ethnic group would ever become clean. And then as he wakes up, picture this, as he's waking up, he hears a knock on the door. And it's a bunch of Gentiles. It's a bunch of people that would have never measured up to what Peter thought was the standards by which God would bring somebody into the kingdom. Listen, Peter has some racial tension and some racial issues, and a bunch of Gentiles come knocking on the door, and for the very first time in Peter's mind, he hears a bunch of people who should not be Jesus' worshippers say, God spoke to me. You see, Jesus are, is showing Peter a picture of grace, He wants you to see, and he wants you and I to see, that his death and resurrection has redefined the way that God works and the way that we must see one another. That no longer in our lives does our ethnic background, does our socioeconomic status, does our race, does any of those things qualify as anything that should divide us at all? See, what Peter thought Jesus was talking about was food, pigs, and different things like this. And what Jesus was talking about was your race, your ethnicity, and where your socioeconomic background was. And he says, Peter, what you think is unclean, I have made clean because I did what you never, what you no longer could do. I stood in your place, and my grace is sufficient for you. So the thing that you, human, that you humans use to divide each other, I have broken down every wall of hostility and every divider, and I say who's clean and who's not clean, and here's what I say, is anybody that trusts me and loves me Me, those people are clean. Listen, City Church, God is the God of all people, and He died so that every race and every background could stand in His throne forever. You see, the gospel redefines the way that God looks at humanity, and it must redefine the way that we look at one another. That's honestly that's the point of this text. The gospel is the great equalizer because at the cross, we are all equally condemned. But at the cross, every single one of us has the opportunity to come and be right with God. You get this, right? See, before the cross can be your victory, listen to me, it is your condemnation. I think we often jump straight to the victory. Like, Jesus, you died in my place. But do you understand the indictment that the cross makes on you? The indictment the cross makes on you is that Jesus had to die in your place. Listen to the way Jonathan Edwards says this. Jonathan Edwards, great Puritan theologian, he says, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. I don't know about you, but the first time I read that, that was a hard pill to swallow. This is a huge deal because, listen to me, it says at the foot of the cross, you don't deserve Jesus. It's all by His grace. And let me show you what His grace does. I'm going to survey just a a bunch of texts. You can write down the references and go back and read them later, but I underline some things in here that I think that you should make, make note of. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, you see that whoever, that's an underlined word, believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. First Timothy 2, 3 and 4, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of our, God our Savior, listen, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge uh, of his truth. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. All right, Matthew 24, 14. 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony Listen to all nations, and then the end will come, and then I love this, might be one of my favorite texts in all of scripture, Revelation 7, 9, and 10, this is the end, when Jesus comes back, and after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you get the picture? The gospel breaks down every ethnic barrier that the world has created, and listen to me, if you have prejudice in your heart, here's what I want to tell you, you're going to be really miserable when you get to heaven, because Revelation 7 says that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will stand around the throne of God, and they will proclaim his glory because God is a God of all people. You see Ephesians chapter 2, 13, the gospel has broken down every dividing wall of hostility. So if God has made it clean, here's what I want you to hear. Don't call it unclean. You hear what I'm saying? If you have breath in your lungs, listen to me, you are not common. You are uncommon. The angels say that they long to have what you have. The affection of God on you. I want you to hear me say this. You were made in the image of God. Call this the Imago Day. In Genesis chapter 2, when God was creating all these things, he spoke, he spoke, he spoke, and then he looked upon you and he breathed life into you. And here's what that means. That means you have extreme value but that also means that every single human being in the world has extreme value and you have to stop looking at people that you might have prejudice against, whether or not they're black or white or they're somewhere in the Middle East and you've got to stop looking at them as enemies and you've got to start, start looking at them as brothers and sisters that Jesus died for because that's what heaven's going to look like. You tracking with me? Here, let me say it this way and you can write this down. If you are a Christ follower, there's absolutely no room in the church for racism. Zero. Listen, if you have any prejudice, you are not just standing in opposition of one another, but you are standing in opposition of God. That's clear. Don't call what God calls clean, unclean. So I want to give you a little tool that a friend of mine um, at the church we previously came to, he, he created to help us think through the lens of, of how, to, how to deal with like, racial reconciliation in our own hearts, in our own lives. I think this is really good. But before I do that, guys, let, 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 me, um, let, let me tell you just a few more things. Listen, listen, sometimes, I'll be honest with you, it would be a lot easier not to just talk about these things. To be honest, it'd just be easier to give you four ways to have a better life. But you know what we're committed to here at City Church? We're committed to teaching the gospel. We believe that God's words are our ultimate authority. That's why we teach through books of the Bible, and that's why when we come to texts like this, we hit them head on, because we believe God is good, and we believe that this is the greatest way to reflect the community that God has created. You get that, right? Right? The, the church is the tool, listen, that the kingdom of God, what heaven's going to look like, is supposed to reflect here on earth. So the way we live and the way we operate is supposed to communicate to the world that not, not that the church is the being end all, but that heaven is. And what you experience here in our church is what you're going to experience one day in heaven. So what we communicate by how we love one another goes to the heart of what the kingdom's going to look like. So listen. Race and socioeconomic status, none of those things are dividers. They can't be. And and the reality is, is most of us live in this homogenous community where we only spend our lives with people who look and act just like us. The problem is, that's not what heaven's going to look like. But when we live in gospel-saturated community, we bring a picture of what heaven is going to look like to a world that is begging for that picture. I mean, you go, on any so, you go on any social media outlet or you go on any news outlet, here's what you see is people want this community, but they have absolutely no clue how to do it. So what you see is you see a world that's still divided. You see people who are, there's racism and hurt and pain all over our country, and it's not just our country. I promise you, I've been to, I think I try to count, like 30 different countries, and there's racism everywhere. Listen, racism is a human issue, not an American issue. It goes deep into our hearts. So let me give you a paradigm, four different things to think through that will help us when we think through what does racial reconciliation in the church look like. Here's number one, ignorance. Ignorance. See, at some point, we have to admit that we're pretty ignorant, right? We can't just make statements like, I'm not racist. Here's what we do. When we make statements like that, we we miss the fact that we're blind to our own blindness. I, I love the way John Owens, another Puritan, he said it like this, the seed of every sin is in every human heart. Here's what that means. Guys, that means that the problem has to start with me. I'll just be honest with you. If I don't start with me, that I might have something in me, then I miss the fact that, like, th- this thing is, is a human issue. It's not, it's not just an American issue or somebody else's issue right? This is what Peter had to do. Peter had to recognize that he had the same problem. Before God could move in Cornelius's heart, he had to bring down the, the, the pig in the blanket to him and show him, Peter, this isn't just out there, that's in you. And what I want you to see is I'm redefining the way the world works, and you have to too, right? So how do I know this? How do I know this? Because according to the Bible, since Genesis chapter 11, which is the Tower of Babel, this has been a problem for all of us. When God divided the races and split them out all over the world, listen, it's been a problem for all of us. Every human existing culture that's ever existed has dealt with this problem. But here's what I know, and here's what the gospel reminds us of. Although there are many different cultures, there's only one race, and that race is called the human race, and there's one truth, and that truth is called the gospel, and that's what brings us back together, is that Jesus would die in our place, and he would bring us to himself, and in him, we all are reconciled to God, and in that, that changes everything. So I think we have to be able to confess, listen, I think we have to be able to confess that it's not just out there, it's in here. And when we do that, something crazy happens. Martin Luther once said that all of the Christian life is one of repentance. See, that's where it has to start. It's me. As your pastor, I just, just confess to you, it's me. I know that. I know how I feel in my heart when different things happen around the world. And I remember traveling to places that uh, for most Americans you never go and places that you think are quite hostile. And I remember that feeling in my gut the first time that I met somebody from one of those cultures. And I thought, why do I feel this way? Because hanging out with them for 15 minutes, I realized really quickly they're just like me. But for some reason, I have created some subconscious presupposition of what I think that you should be like. And so I see this whenever I'm walking down the road or whatever else, and it comes into my mind, and I have to confess that it's me. But I can't stop there. So number one is my ignorance, but number two is awareness. Once Once we recognize that we're different... Listen, we have to move beyond our recognition to our awareness. Guys, this normally happens through relationships, right? This is quite simple. When you have relationships with people who don't look like you or act like you, you begin to become aware of your deep prejudice against people that you didn't realize you even had. So here's a question for you that I want to ask, okay? When you think Monday through Sunday at your house, who sits around your dinner table, right? Are they people who look, act, and are just like you? Because here, here's the reality, and I want you to hear me say this, our church will reflect what your dinner table looks like. Because at City Church, we believe that you are God's game plan to take the gospel of the nations. We believe that you are an army and not an audience, which means that if we're going to reach people in our community who, last time I checked, is like predominantly outside of whites, predominantly Asian and Indian, our uh, only way that's going to happen is when we have relationships with people that don't look like us. See, this is how this works, right? This is a big deal. When your community reflects your dinner table, that means you're having relationships with people that aren't like you. And when you do that, you see that amazing things happen. So we have to move from our ignorance, which our ignorance is I don't have a problem, to our awareness, which is like I have to start building relationships with people who don't look like me, which ultimately, and number three, will lead to our intentionality, right? Our intentionality. Here's what my friend Chris Green says about this. He says, we often stop. By the way, Chris Green's the one who created this. He says, we often stop at our awareness because once we build relationships, we think that we've changed society. The reality is that's just not true. We now have to become intentional. And what intentionality means is we're willing to do things a little differently because we believe, listen, that we're not just trying to invite you into my culture, but we're trying to create a culture that looks like the kingdom of God, which means that if there's secondary issues in my life. I'm willing to give those things up and be open-handed to them because I realize that my culture is not superior culture, but that God has created all different kinds of cultures. And the most beautiful thing that happens in my intentionality is whenever I'm allowing God to bring into our culture something absolutely amazing, which is the blending of all different types of cultures. And he says the only way that's possible is when you start with relationships and then when you believe that the gospel community is more important than your own culture. So that's number three. Number four, though, Listen, he says this ultimately leads us to a gospel community. You see, gospel community means this. Listen, we're not pursuing sameness. We're pursuing oneness, which means that we love that God has created a, a diversity within us. But in our diversity, we have a unity that goes beyond our culture, and it goes to our primary culture, which is as Christ followers. We believe that Jesus has done everything necessary to save us. You get this. This means that we embrace the fact that we are different And we have different experiences, yet our identity and our primary identity is in Christ, and that unifies us, and that's more important than any of the secondary issues that we have. And we're willing to give up our secondary things so that we can have primary things in Christ. Here's how we say it in our membership covenant. We will preserve the unity of biblical fellowship in matters of non-essential beliefs and preferences. Here's all that means. There are non-essential things which is like 99.9% of the things that you and I believe and deal with. The style of music, the way things look, how we act, what we do, all those things as believers in Jesus Christ, we're saying we are willing to preserve unity in those things, right? That's our secondary culture. But in our primary culture, we'll fight over those things because we believe that God's kingdom is good and We want this, and what we're willing to pursue is this. But the only way that we're willing or able to pursue God's kingdom is if we're willing and able to give up these things. You get that, right? Unless you are willing to do this, you'll never have gospel community. All you'll have is your community that you're telling people who are of a minority culture to jump into. Martin Luther King Jr., you guys have all heard this, I would imagine, but he said the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on Sunday. You know what I find sad about this quote? That was 50 years ago, and it's still true. Still true. City Church, if we want to reflect God's kingdom, that means we create an environment where that's simply not true, where we reach out to our neighbors. I heard Brian, one of our elders, he was leading our volunteer teams this morning. He was telling us how in his neighborhood, just right across the street, is a black couple and then an African couple and an Indian couple. Like, they're all in his neighborhood. And he said, if I want to see my life change, I've got to start inviting them to be around my dinner table, too. See, if we embrace this paradigm and we move through it from ignorance to relationship to intentionality, here's what we'll start seeing is a gospel-centric community happen in our city. And what you'll start seeing is all the walls of hostility that our city has that none of us like to admit start falling down little by little. And the kingdom of God starts to take root in a place that is absolutely beautiful. Keep reading with me in verse 17. Now, while Peter, so he has this vision, and while Peter's inwardly perplexed, as to what this vision that he had had, that he had seen, might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out and asked whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. That's a key one. If you underline things, I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you and to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. The next day he arose and he went with them and some of the brothers from from Joppa and accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, and he fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And he talked with him, and he went in, and he found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of any other nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I sent for you, I came without objection. And I asked then, why have you sent for me? You notice that phrase, the last one? And imagine it. I, 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 just, I think sometimes you have to understand like the context. Okay, you just read this and you skip over it. Now, imagine if this was 2019 America, and I was to come to your house, and you're a black guy, and I say, brother, I just need you to know, you know, I, I'm not even supposed to be here. It's unlawful for me to hang out with you. But you know what? I've, I've understood the gospel, and I don't think you're unclean anymore. Like, that's hard. Th- this right here would have been, like, mind-blowing. But you notice Peter got it for the very first time. It's like it clicked. Like, Jesus, you're not talking about animals. You're talking about this brother you died for, right? All Jewish law would have said, that Peter, you cannot be there but God. But God. But God. And when God said it, Peter, for the first time, It clicked. I will do it. Peter says, Why'd you send me? Why'd you send me? Listen to what they say. Cornelius said, Four days ago, at about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask Simon. Ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. And you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So why'd you send me? Well, I sent you because I need to hear the gospel. So what does Peter do? He's about to unload. Listen to what he says. So Peter opened up his mouth and he said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. That is a huge statement because he didn't understand that two days ago. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right, is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. Now God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us, who has been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one anointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness." to everyone who believes in him, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water, baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. All right, there's a lot going on here. But what I want you to see is, there's, there's really two particular things that I want you to see. Number one is that God has a heart for all people and so should we. We covered this quite extensively, but I, I, just, I can't move on without saying it as clearly as possible. Listen to me, there is absolutely no room in the church of Jesus Christ for any kind of prejudice or racism at all because Jesus Christ died for all people. No matter your skin color, your ethnic background, or your socioeconomic status, no matter what you have done. I showed you this last week. A terrorist named Paul comes to faith. Jesus can save anyone. There's nobody outside the reach of God. And you have to understand that. And the only way you can understand that is if you're humble enough to understand that you don't deserve the gospel yourself. That's where it all starts. God is not fair. He gives you and I what we don't deserve. And when we have the humility to understand that, that outside of Jesus, we are all the same. But because Jesus died for us, he changes our hearts and gives us a new one. That gives us the ability to love people who we think are unlovable. And we have absolutely no right to do anything other than that. That's the first point. Here's the second thing I want you to notice. Listen, it's a theme of sharing the gospel and how the gospel works okay? You're going to see there's four key characteristics really quickly that happens every single time that somebody comes to faith. Here they are. Number one is this. Write this down. God calls. God calls. Did you notice that? Did you notice that God called both Cornelius and Peter? Right, the same thing happens today. Right now, God is calling people to come to himself, okay? So Cornelius is praying, he's doing what he's doing, and God comes to him via an angel and says, hey, go get Peter. Peter is doing the same thing. Peter's hungry, he falls asleep, and God says, hey, I need you to go tell the gospel to that guy. Now, it doesn't always happen quite like that today, but let me give you an illustration of how this works. Last week, okay, last week we celebrated a baptism. Last week, we had a guy who wrote me an email and he says, hey, I don't know why, but I woke up this morning and God said, I need to go to church. I don't know why, but I came. And when I came, there was another guy who was kind enough that sat next to me. And I don't know why that guy sat next to me, but he started talking to me. And by the way, that guy was kind